Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. This episode is part of a series I call Pathways to Peace, in which I speak with individuals who are committed to working for a safer, less violent world. Mary Lawler is the UN expert on the situation of human rights defenders, appointed in 2020 by the Human Rights Council. She's an adjunct professor of business and human rights at Trinity College, Dublin. She founded the NGO Frontline Defenders in 2001 and was its executive director until 2016. I spoke with her recently to ask her thoughts on how societies and the international community can respond to the increased violence and threats of violence against human rights defenders. 281 human rights defenders were killed in 2019. And in, uh, if you look at the statistics collected by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights between 2015 and 2019, 1,323 innocent, peaceful human rights defenders were murdered because of their human rights work in 64 countries. That really shocked me. And I've been doing human rights work an awful long time. But when you see the statistics so stark, um, you know, that almost a third of member states have killed um, human rights defenders. And of course, um, you know, impunity is a key driver for this. And since uh, the mandate started 20 years ago, uh, the issue of impunity and not bringing perpetrators to justice has been uh, mentioned in recommendations at least 30 times. The lead has to come from states because states are responsible for protecting human rights defenders. The UN Declaration on Human Rights Defenders was agreed by all member states of the UN in 1998, and it, it took 13 years to negotiate. So it was passed, you, you know, consensus in the end. And that sets out the, the, the right to defend human rights in accordance with international standards, you know, the UN uh, declaration and this declaration on human rights defenders. So, uh, so the lead has to come from states. And what I find missing in so many places is political will. States do not publicly recognize the work of human rights defenders. They don't say how their work should be valued and they don't applaud the work of human rights defenders. They should be sending a very clear message from the top that the work of human rights defenders is vital and is recognized by the state as vital. So I would say that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, of course, is to tackle impunity wherever it occurs, whether it's at local level, um, you know, whether it's uh, collusion with, for example, local thugs, uh, in um, in the police or whether or not, you know, business and uh, local authorities are involved in, in killings or whatever it is. Impunity, investigation and impunity is key. We, you know, we know that the rule of law uh, is is really important. And if, if, if you are like this morning, I was speaking to Somali human rights defenders and they are living in a climate of fear because there's no laws. I mean, the constitution is there, but there's no police, there's no judiciary, there's a weak government, 
this is in 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 uh, this is what they were telling me this morning. And there's absolutely no investigations. If anyone anyone can be arrested, and that's that. So so there is a real need for investigation and bringing perpetrators to judge to justice. And society, I think, has a role to educate themselves on human rights defenders and to stand up for human rights defenders and to say that they should be entitled to do their work. They, after all, are the ones that are trying to uh, monitor and uh, um, uh, report on the situation of very vulnerable people. Um, so, and, and yes, sometimes the work can be unpopular with society, but it doesn't exclude, it doesn't mean that society can uh, ignore its obligation. So that is one thing. And then the other thing is, I think human rights education should be taught in the schools from a very early age. So that the, the, the message of uh, the importance of human rights as a foundation for how people live their lives, an ethical foundation about how people live their lives, that should be, in my view, um, a goal of every government. Much of the violence takes place where there is conflict over resource extraction. When it comes to multinational corporations, the global standard for the protection of human rights was set by the UN Guiding Principles on Human Rights and Business. These principles have been in effect for 10 years. Can you comment on their role today? The UN Guiding Principles is, uh, you know, is the key, I suppose, uh, to... Uh, educate people about the role uh, of both states and business in protecting uh, human rights and human rights defenders. And the second pillar of the UN guiding principle has uh, has to do with states. Uh, sorry, with with companies. The first one is states, and it is their obligation to protect. With companies, it is their obligation to respect the rights of any communities that they impact. And the third pillar then is access to remedy. Now, when it comes to companies, and this is particularly prevalent, um, um, prevalent um, in, as you say, extractive mining or agribusiness, something like that, where companies and particularly um, um, multinational extractive mining companies come into countries. And it is usually, as you say, the indigenous people who are affected. Their land is taken over for this land, for this, um, for this uh, project. Today I had been on to uh, human, two women human rights defenders who worked in Colombia um, defending uh, indigenous land and uh, indigenous people's land and environmental rights. And they were, they were uh, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Serajan mine in, in Colombia. It's the biggest uh, coal mine in Colombia and it's been going for 20 years and the people have been displaced. There's been a, an awful lot of environmental damage. Uh, the water has been polluted and without water, you know, some people who are subsistence farmers, uh, they they live by what they grow and they can't live if they can't grow and they can't grow if they don't have good water. So it's a it's a vicious cycle. And uh, there have been a lot of uh, 
the community have been threatened, human rights defenders have been threatened. And this is this is something you see all over where um, where you have environmental um, issues and uh, human rights defender issues in the context of uh, big business. And they can be in they can be in league with the local authorities. They can be in league with the government. For example, when I was in Guatemala, this environmental impact statement uh, of the mine that I was talking about, this environmental in impact statement, was lodged in Guatemala City in a language the people didn't understand, and they had never moved from their community outside of their community. They'd never been to Guatemala City. So the odds are always stacked against, stacked, stacked against those without the power in the community that is being affected. But how do we how do we avoid that that deterioration to armed resistance? What other uh, forms of resistance can we find? I think it gets back to the conditions that people are forced to live under, and they eventually turn turn to arms if they see no other way out. Um, and and then, of course, that just compounds all the problems everywhere. So for me, that's why the work of human rights defenders is very important, because they are documenting and monitoring all the injustices that go on in society. Um, uh, but without the state intervention in, in acting on the in information that they give, then, of course, you will have people who will um, take to arms and uh, uh, and uh, and then eventually they come, as you say, to the like they did in Northern Ireland. They come to the realization that you, you know you can't solve anything through arms, um, you know, in long term. Um, so again, I, I yeah, and I, I do understand in very poor countries and in countries where there is maybe weak government, and not hostile government, but weak government, um, which doesn't have resources uh, to put in place um, a good governance system or a system of, um, of uh, ensuring that everyone has a right to a dignified life, you know, with enough to eat and, and enough work. Um, that, is, that is difficult, but... But again, it comes down to me, it comes down to education, it comes down to a real will by the state concerned to do what they can to improve the lives of their citizens. I mean, that's why they've been elected. You begin our conversation with some dreadful statistics on the level of violence and death of human rights defenders. Looking forward, where do you see indicators that would be more hopeful? The hope is there are always and there will be always people and more people who, uh, who want justice and human rights than those who want uh, to abuse power. And that's where I see the hope. I see the hope in the people who are determined to struggle and devote their lives uh, to further promotion and protection of human rights because they don't want their children to face the same stuff that they faced. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.